Hello and welcome to episode 2 of the second series of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Today we have Charlotte Henshaw on the show, a former swimmer and silver and bronze Paralympic medalist who has ambitions for Tokyo, an entirely different sport. Now Charlotte had her legs amputated at just 18 months old. She's been through so many challenges in her life and has come out on top in every single one of them. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Going back to the start then, um, you know, growing up in Mansfield, uh, how was that? Because your dad competed, I could be wrong, but your dad competed for GB in karate as well. So you kind of had a sporting <laughs> upbringing. Yeah, that's right. He, well, he, he'd done martial arts for as long as I can remember. Obviously, when he competed for Great Britain, it was, I think it was during the 70s. I, I could be wrong with that, but I think it was during the 70s and um, sort of think European level he went to. Um, and yeah, he's done it for forever. And I, I think, you know, obviously his experience was, uh, I wouldn't say it influenced me being a sporty kid because I don't think it really did, but um, it's probably something that I've kind of realized more as I've got older that he was kind of part of that. Um, but yeah, growing up in Mansfield, I mean, it was, it was fine, you know, it was just a normal upbringing. And um, I, um, for the first few years of my life, uh, we lived above um, uh, a, a pub, me, my mom and my dad. And then um, when I was about six, we moved into our, our house. We moved away from there. And that's when I kind of remember um, starting to go to local swimming pools, swimming lessons, things like that. I don't really remember much about being involved in, in swimming before that, but I know my parents took me when I was a baby. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate that in swimming, we had a very good system set up in Mansfield. So it was the right place for me to then make that progression through. Because um, like I say, we've got a very good system here in, when I was a kid. So growing up then, because was it, is it tibial hyperplasia? Is that? It, I don't think that's it. So basically, um, that, that's online somewhere. And I don't know whether I said it once and then I was quickly corrected that that. I, so technically there is no name for what I or the condition that I had so I not there's only was no, there's, I, no, there's no name for it at all no so they when I was born I was born without tibias both sides uh, but I had um like inverted club feet so I had and I had the uh, the small bone in my calf but not the tibia and I had um like not fully formed knee joints but um and my femur bones were short so they'd not developed to the full length anyway so it was more of a bone development issue and then as I got older they realized that there were I had problems with my teeth I have I've got scoliosis as well so they think it's something to do with bone formation but there was a, a specialist when I was a baby that had said that he'd seen that kind of um syndrome or disorder in one other child in Israel I think he'd said but then he unfortunately passed away when I was still very young and um I'm not really sure that they kind of deciphered what it was so it's it, but it, it's but not, it really wasn't common at all then no not at all and so I think because of just the exact way that my legs were formed it, it wasn't like um it was quite a lot of deformity, which is why they then, my parents decided that um, an amputation would probably give me the most likelihood of independence because I wouldn't have been able to put weight through my legs or anything. So amputating at the knee would allow me to then wear prosthetics, which then, um, you know, by the time I was two, I was wearing prosthetics. So it wasn't like I'd learned to do things and then have to have my amputation. It was kind of like yeah, yeah. Done at the right time develop, developmentally, which was a real blessing, actually, it's turned out. How was that growing up then? Because I know you started swimming quite young anyway. I mean, how was kind of just being at school without kind of, you know, that, that support where, you know, you were, I guess, different to all the other kids as well? Yeah, I mean, my school were brilliant. Um, and 
I think because I was quite an outgoing kid and I had always been told by my parents that, you know, you can do whatever you want and they wanted to me to be as independent as possible. Um, cause I think there was an initial chat that I might end up going to, um, a special school and my parents were like, she doesn't need that. It's just the physicality access to school that she will struggle with potentially. So, um, my primary school kind of put in ramps, they put in rails cause they knew that I was going. Um, and then from that point, I was able to kind of do what my friends were doing at school. And um, there was a few things that I had to change in PE and things like that. But as a general rule, I was able to kind of live quite happily alongside my able-bodied friends. And so I never really experienced any problems at school. And I think if there was anything that was ever said about me, I never knew it. it I didn't get bullied. I didn't, um, it wasn't an unpleasant experience. Let's put it that way. And I don't know if that's because I was an active kid and I just got stuck into everything. So they kind of were like, well, Charlotte kind of joins in. So it is what it is. I, I, I don't yeah, know. Definitely. I mean, yeah. were there any other kids at school who were disabled as well? Kind of, you know, who had amputations? Were you like the only one? No, in my primary school, I was the only, I think at the time, I think I was the only disabled kid um, at my school. And, but like my friends, and it's been a common theme throughout my life. I think the friends that I made were kind of like, oh, it's, that's just Charlotte and it is what it is. And I, I, I often wonder if sometimes because I was active and then when I started to pick up swimming, because I had something that I was good at and people knew that I was good at it, I don't know whether that influenced, you know, because I think sometimes people think, oh, disabled people can't do a lot or they're really limited in what they can do whereas I was kind of going off and I was uh, pursuing this hobby at the time but I was good at it and so I don't know whether people kind of related to the fact that oh she's she's she is good at something and I don't know it's a I guess I'd have to ask them which I, I haven't ever really <laughs> <laughs> so swimming it uh, like growing up um kind of doing swimming from a young age were you swimming against other able-bodied kids as well and were yeah. you doing those races as well with you know yeah yes I was so when when I was younger my my mum and dad were really keen to 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 get me to learn how to swim because it's a life skill and it's important to be safe in the water and um obviously the natural thing is for kids to go to swimming lessons so we I went swimming lessons the same as everyone else and uh, I th remember thinking that I would get special treatment because I was only able to swim with my arms. And so when they were doing things like, um, in swimming, you're supposed to push off like streamline with your arms together. And I thought that I'd get a, a special pass because I couldn't balance. And, and I remember really clearly I was kind of doing it differently. And the, the swimming teacher I had at the time, he was like lying on the pool deck and his face was like, here just kind of staring at me to say oh, really you can you can do the same as that like you just got to find your own way of doing it and I from that moment I was like right so if that whatever they're doing apart from if it's just kick obviously but I will have to swim the same way that they do I just have to compensate for just having two limbs and not four um so I learned to swim with able-bodied kids and I joined an able-bodied swimming club I was a member of Sherwood Swimming Club and I used to do the galas and uh, I trained with able-bodied swimmers the whole way through my career. The only time I ever did a disability specific squad was when I was at university. Um, and that was a high performance center for British swimming. Um, but every other time I trained with able-bodied club the whole time. So what was the reaction? Was there, you know, when you started kind of winning races, was there a point where people thought, you know, you know, this girl's really good. She's going to go somewhere. Um, I think that kind of came, I was sort of, uh, so having said that, I was only with able-bodied kids. Alongside that, they'd set up a, um, a disabled swimming club at Sherwood Bath. It was like a, a branch of Sherwood Swimming Club that was just for disabled kids. And it was a real range of people that went to swimming club and could swim well or um people that just wanted to come and learn how to swim or be in the water. So it was a real mixed ability. And I, 
I don't know how, and I still need to ask my mom, um, a, a guy who is Australian, his name was Doug Williamson, and he was into swimming, big swimming coach. And he saw me swim at something, and I don't know what it was. And he went and spoke to my mom and was like, your daughter is talented. She needs to, you know, this is something she could pursue. Um, and then he was coaching at a, a sort of a similar disability squad in Nottingham, but it was a, it was a bit more elite. It was kind of like disabled swimmers who wanted to swim competitively. Yeah, yeah. So my mum would drive me over to Nottingham once a week um, and I started to swim with him. And he kind of introduced us to the world of para swimming. And um, it was him really that was the one that suggested that it might be something more than a hobby for me. He saw something in me that um, perhaps no one else had at that point. So was he the guy who then got you from just swimming at a local club to then, you know, swimming for GB when you were about 16 then? I was only with him. I think I stopped going to Panthers when I was, I I was probably about 11, I I think, because I don't think he then carried on. Um, but he'd instilled in me some of that real coaching and he had um, got me swimming more efficiently and not just plodding up and down the pool and splashing around. It was becoming much more refined, the technique. And so um, I think that was when it moved from swimming teaching to swimming coaching. I would say that that was the, the, the bridge. And then when I went back to train properly with Sherwood Swimming Club, it was I then followed the same path that everyone else does in, in, in Mansfield, which is a club swim. And then you get invited to be part of the county squad, which is Nova Centurion, which is then who I trained with for the rest of my career. And that's how I got to know Glenn Smith, who was then my coach for until I retired. Oh, nice. Were you training with Ollie Hind at any point kind of in, or is like the age gap a bit? Not in the early years. So I, I'm, a, I'm probably eight years older than Ollie, I think. Um, and I think the first time that I got to know either him, it was more Sam, his brother, that um, when I came back from university, Sam was training with Nova. So that's how I kind of got to know Sam. And then obviously Ollie was then classified a bit later, but he was already swimming as an able-bodied swimmer um, before he was kind of... Sam went to Beijing, I think, didn't he? And then... Sam went to Beijing and we were on a team together in Beijing and Ollie was not really swimming para then. I don't think he was there watching, but um, I think then his MD became more apparent and then he got, um, then he got classified and he came on the scene in three years later, I think something like that. Nice. And talking about Beijing then, um, because you got selected at university for the Beijing Paralympics, that must have been a wild one. Like, what was the reaction when you told people up in Scotland about that? Uh, well, it was, again, it was, I was quite a late bloomer in terms of uh, international swimming. So um, I'd got on the world-class potential, as it was called then, when I was about 16, raced for GB for the first time when I was 17. And then I moved to university uh, because of the swimming program in Stirling. Um, and I it was during my time at university that I made quite a a dramatic improvement. And so when the Beijing trials were coming around, I was in my third year of uni. So I got one more year to go. And because I trained with the elite squad, most of us were going for selection for the games anyway. So, um, and because I've been at uni three years, my friends then knew that myself and my, one of my flatmates, Angela, we, we were both swimming with the, the the elite squad then. So they were kind of used to it. They weren't like wildly impressed. They were like, oh, well, that's what you've been working for, isn't it? <laughs> so I don't think it was this huge thing. But um, it, for me, it was the realization of a, a childhood dream to become a Paralympian. Um, and yeah, I was just, you know, amazed to, to finally um, be selected for a, a Paralympics. How was Beijing going out there? Because when I've spoken to David, you know, Ellie, um, Ollie, sorry, uh, yeah, Ollie, when he mentioned about Sam as well, 
they all mentioned kind of when they went out there for the first time, it was always a buzz. You don't really remember much. It was kind of like just the thrill of it and just being there. Was that the same for you then? Yeah. I, and for me, I'd, I'd gone into Beijing while I was a newbie. I didn't really have any expectations, but the closer it got, the more I thought maybe I could win a medal. And then when I got out there, um, I got an infection in one of my legs. And so I, it came on during the opening ceremony. I started to feel really poorly. It came on during the opening ceremony. I remember it so clearly. I was sitting, and it was humid anyway. Don't get me wrong, it was hot. And I was at the opening ceremony, and I walked in, and I remember sitting in the athlete seats, and I was like, I feel like woozy. I, was, I didn't feel right. I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I was like, I don't feel well. And um, I was getting flushed, and I was hot. And I went back to the village, and then the next day, my leg had swollen I couldn't even get my prosthetic on and I got a raging temperature and they were like, you know, you've got an infection in your leg and they were like, we don't even know whether it's safe for you to race really. Like, and so I'd said, you know, I'm racing this race. I've not come all the way to China to not race in the Paralympics. And I, I didn't feel like I could call myself Paralympian if I hadn't raced. Yeah, yeah. Game, even though I was there, but I was like, I haven't raced at one, so I, I'm it's racing. It's like a competitive feeling, isn't it, that you got to? Yeah, and I was like, I will get through it. I was like, somehow I will get through this race, and if I don't have to push off on that leg, even though it was my dominant leg, I was like, I'll, I'll make do, and I will push off some other way. If it hurts, I don't care. And so even though I was ill, and when I raced, like I really wasn't well, but I came forth, and I was gutted with coming forth. Um, so Were you quite though, close to finishing third then as well? Pardon? Were you quite close to finishing uh, in the bronze medal? You know medal? what? I have no idea how far I was off the bronze medal. I don't know because I've never watched it back because I don't, again, it wasn't like London where there was a massive amount of coverage. Um, I, I'm sure it is out there because Liz, um, Liz Johnson, my teammate, won that race. So I'm sure it's out some, but I've never watched it back because I'm so like traumatized from the oh, really? memory wow. of yeah, I just, I was just gutted that I'd waited so long to become a Paralympian. And then at that point, I was just, it just, I wasn't able to do what I thought I was able, capable of. And so I was just gutted. And I came back from Beijing and I was like, I don't, I think I want to quit. I was like, I, it just, it devastated me. And however, having said that, going back to your original point, I loved Beijing because it was, even though I was ill and even though I underperformed in my mind, like the thrill of being at a Paralympic Games was still exciting. And it was still, I have some great memories of that Games. And I think I kind of looked at it with rose tinted glasses because it was the first time I've ever experienced it. And so even though there is this bittersweet kind of disappointment, I still kind of think of it really fondly because it was my first games and did you, I was did you meet any kind of big names out there that you can remember well and they gave you any good advice or kind of moving um, forward or well I don't remember anyone specific although um at the time um there was a South African swimmer Natalie Dutoy who was like she was super big time she'd um she crossed over and done able-bodied races and she was kind of a bit, a big name. And I remember being really excited to see her race and just seeing her around the village was cool. And, um, I think I was just so like wide eyed. I didn't really understand the Paralympic movement. I was just kind of like so excited to be there and experience a multi-sport competition and living in the village and going in the food hall. It was all kind of like overwhelming and, um, amazing and um you know like the, the parties at the end where you kind of meet people from all over the world and um yeah it was an amazing you know experience and I, I wouldn't I probably wouldn't change it because I think it actually made me because that disappointment really then fueled me on from that point yes athletes always talking about this you know Olympic and Paralympic athletes they always talk about you know the post-Olympic and Paralympic blues when you get back you've had that buzz for such a long time and you get out of that and suddenly it's, well, what do we do now? Yeah, it's awful and it is a real thing. And I experienced it the biggest time after, was it London? Uh, well, London was hard anyway to come down from that because it was so, for the British team, it was like the ultimate. And so to kind of come home and go, oh, I've got to go and do my shopping and wash my bathroom and it, that's a big bump back to reality. And actually I, 
it was after London. Now I remember I moved in with back with my mom for a few weeks because I was living, I was renting a flat and I was so lonely when I came home because I'd constantly been with people for four weeks and I had the most amazing time. And I remember sitting on the sofa in my flat and I was like, I can't, I can't cope with it being so quiet and so normal. So I moved back in with my mom just for a couple of weeks, just to kind of come down a bit more gradually and have somebody there to kind of, um, and it happens, it happened after Rio. I had big blues after that because it, it is, it's hard to come away from. So talking about London then, I mean, you, you kind of went into London, and I could, you know, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but you kind of went into London with a bit of form. You know, you had kind of your breakthrough during the 2009 Euros there where you won gold in the yeah. breaststroke and then 2010 you won the silver at the Worlds. Yeah. So you kind of, in going into London, you know, with medals in the major champs off your back, but again... Like athletes always talk about, you know, a Paralympic and an Olympic medal. Um, I sent to Ali in the, in, in the previous show where he, he was on about, you know, you can win all these medals in, in Worlds and European Champs, but then if you don't win a Paralympic medal, you could win seven or eight World Championships. But then if you win silver, even if you don't win gold to an extent, it, it can kind of, you know, taint your legacy to an extent. And going into London, you know, how was that? Um, because you missed out on gold by a, such a small margin as well. I know. And that still haunts me to this day. However, I have to give a bit of context to that. So as you said, I was, I was, um, I was a medalist in 2009, 2010, 2011. Um, so consistently in the top three in the world. And then um, for London, we had two opportunities to be selected. So we had trials in march in london which was the olympic trials as well and then we had a separate para trials in sheffield uh in i think it was in the april so there was about four weeks between the two and i was like we've got to get the job done in london and then we can just enjoy the second trials and just try and put some racing together and went down to london trials and i absolutely bombed it it was awful and i didn't make the qualifying time in the heat or the final really yeah, and I terribly and a, a fair way out, I would say. And the the qualifying time was well within my my PB, well within. Um, I need a good swim, but I didn't need to swim out of my skin and PB to get onto the team. And I was well outside, and I was like, right, okay. And then <clears throat> came back, had some investigations because we were like it was so unusual for me to swim that slowly. I, I, I was kind of like consistently around certain times and then this one was wildly off. Um, and so I had some investigations and they had found out that I was kind of in the midst of um, like overtraining syndrome. Like I was completely just wiped out. I just had no hope of swimming fast at that point. And so we spoke to the, the doctors and everything and we were like, can we, if we can get a performance together to do the second trials, great. But we'd always thought about um, maybe putting in mitigating circumstances or something like that. Cause I, I didn't think that I could do that time with how bad I felt. Overtraining um, syndrome is that, so is that a really big thing in, in, well, just athletes generally then? Yeah. So initially they thought it might be glandular fever and then that, that wasn't the case. And I just had trained myself into the ground to get good enough to get selected for a home games. And then I trained too much and I just hadn't recovered and I just was on the floor. I just could not have performed quickly because I just didn't have, I was just too tired and I couldn't, and it was, I, I was kind of um and ah and like, I was like, oh, I, I'm fine. Like it's just fatigue. And I've quickly learned since that there is a level of fatigue that you can push through and there's a level of fatigue that you, shouldn't push through and I think having gone through that experience it's it's put me with so much knowledge now for the rest of my career Um, that must be such a good learning curve just to go through that because now you can use huge benefit yeah and as a as a team myself and, and Glenn who was my coach we we had to basically rip up the plan and go right, how do we, if you get selected, which I was selected on a wild card eventually because I didn't make the time at the second trials either. In fact, it was even slower. Um, I really are right. So at both goes of asking, I didn't qualify for the London Games. And so I have, I 
to this day, I am immensely thankful to the performance director at the time, John Atkinson, who both myself and Liz didn't qualify. And we were, you know, she was Paralympic champion in 2008. We were both consistent medalists and neither of us qualified for the games. And so he saw something in us and was like, we're going to take these two on a, on a wild card, which is what it was. And, you know, hope that they come good by the September. And so a lot of pressure on that then, isn't it? No, I am so thankful to him that he saw that if with the, with the luxury of time, we could turn it around. And so that whole six months, we kind of ripped up the rule book and we did something that we'd never done before to try and get me in a good position. So fast forward into London, like I had no expectation because I was like, I'm just glad to be here because six months ago I wasn't even on, you know, I didn't even make the standard to make the team. So I was upset to have missed out on a medal, the gold by that much. But having looked at the bigger picture of 2012 to be that close to winning it and winning a silver medal and actually in a a time that was almost as quick as my PB, it was way quicker than I'd gone earlier on in the year. It was an amazing performance because we turned it around and that made that kind of just missing out on the gold slightly easier because, you know, six months ago, if you'd have told me that I'd win a silver medal, I'd have gone, there's no way. So, you know, it's like imagine like the atmosphere kind of in the pool as well must have been electric. It was. It, it must have been surreal that you you, you know you, you you didn't just know kind of family members and close friends, but you might have known people just generally in the town who came down from Mansfield to watch it. Yeah, and that was exactly it. And I, to this day, I can, if I close my eyes, I can. I'm back on that last fifty meters of that race. I remember it like like it was yesterday it was so loud and i i was always one of those swimmers that put earphones in as we came out from the call room but that day i didn't i was like this is the only time i'm ever gonna get this support and this reception and i'm gonna embrace it because i think if you hadn't have embraced it it would have frightened you and so i was like all these people are here and they're willing us on we were next to each other myself and liz and we were like they just want to see us do well. And I was like, just go out and enjoy it. And I don't remember the first length at all, but I remember touching the wall and pushing off. And as I broke out from my turn and my head came out the water, there was just this wall of noise. And I had two swimming caps on, which makes it hard to hear anyway. And because of breaststroke, like my head was going like that. And Ian was like, whoa, whoa. And I can remember... (laughs) And I remember thinking, I was like, right. it's so loud. I must be doing all right. And I was like, cause I can't see anybody in front of me. So nobody's beating me by a, mar- a huge margin. So I was like, I must be doing well. So I was like, you better swim harder cause they're all cheering for you. And, and then I touched the wall and I looked up and I just saw the lights on the block, which means you were a medalist. And I was like, right, phew, got a medal. Then I turned around and looked and I saw how close it was. And I was like, oh, but, it, it, but what was the bit? What was the, the the feeling? Kind of like the instinctive feeling at the time. Was it kind of just joyous that you won a medal, or was relief. it relief? Relief. Yeah, and it was just this wave of I can't believe a I'm here and b I've just won a, my first Paralympic medal at a home games in front of like you say not only my friends, my family that don't often will never get to come and see me race internationally, but like there's some of my old teachers that come down and myself and Ollie were racing on the same day so a lot of people from Mansfield had gone well we can see both of them race so we'll go down and get tickets and I I still now just it was eight years on Saturday just gone that I raced and people were tagging me in memories that I didn't even know they were there and I was like like you know it was amazing it was and I always said that if I was not going to win a gold like that was the place to do it because no matter what medal you won, you were like treated like a rock star. If you were a British Paralympic athlete, they were just loving it and they were supporting you. And, you know, you wouldn't have got that anywhere else for a silver medal. So it was, it was yeah. incredible. Just away from, uh, are you, do you live near a train line, by the way? Yeah, I do. A train's just gone past. And sorry, my, my battery's dying. I just need to get my charger. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. No worries. Um, yeah, yeah, I do live not far from a train line, so uh, 
<laughs> regular reminders of the time. Yeah, I can about to say. So kind of, you know, moving on from London then, um, kind of what, when you got back, um, was it the kind of thing where you would go into schools and then show your medal around and then stuff like that? That must have been pretty surreal to kind of go back to Mansfield then and that anyone who obviously didn't come down would then see what you had achieved. Yeah, and we, the day we left the Paralympic Village, actually, Ollie and I got in a car with Glenn and we came, I didn't even go home. They brought us straight from the village to Mansfield Town Centre. And there was, obviously, Becky Adlington had won two bronzes at the Olympics and Ollie had won. I'd got silver. Um, there was a, a, a badminton player that had gone to the Olympics that was from Ravenshead, which is not far outside Mansfield. So they'd done this big celebration in the town centre. And we went straight from the London village to that. And there were so many people that turned up to kind of come and celebrate Mansfield's success at the games, like both games. And that was mad as well. Cause it was like in the, you know, the marketplace that I've been to on a Saturday for like years of my life. And then the people like rocking up and people that I've gone to school with and people that I'd never seen for years had like come down and it was, that was pretty special. It was amazing. And then to go back into like my old school and, um, and I think it was important to do that. Cause I think certainly for kids around here to show that, you know, you can have a passion and you can have a, a drive and a dream and, it makes it more real for them because you're someone who talks like them. You know the schools that they go to and they know the places that you kind of hung out as a kid and it just makes it more tangible for them. And I think that that was really special to be able to do that, certainly to local kids and showcase what people from Mansfield could do. Because I think sometimes Mansfield can get a bad rap um, and I think it's really important to show that there are positive things about the town. And the fact that it wasn't just you, it was you, it was Ollie as well. It was everyone else around that. You know, you, you must have, you know, it's kind of going from Morrison's to being an A-list celebrity in the space of two weeks. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's pretty, it must have been a pretty crazy time um, yeah. just being around kind of that atmosphere. It was, it was a, a crazy few months that summer. And like, I'm, I'm a big musical theatre fan. And I remember people were like, all these people that I admired from stage shows of like, watched the games and they were tweeting me and I was like what is going on I was like to me they're like you know they're like big deals and I really admire them and so for them to just take time out of their day to kind of go like that was amazing we watched you I was like this is the weirdest thing and um yeah I mean I think anybody that was a part of London 2012 we're very fortunate that it fell at the right time for us and that it was part of the right time in our career and I think anything that we experienced is like nothing we ever will ever again. So the obvious question then, so how did London 2012 compare to Rio? Because um, that was again, a kind of a bit, another big change, but in a different kind of way as well. Yeah. I mean, We'd gone into Rio not really expecting a lot, to be honest with you. Like we'd heard all the news stories about the Olympics and then straight after like the Paralympics, we've got no money and it's going to be really budget and there's loads of robberies and it's not safe. And we kind of went in with quite low expectations. So then when we got there, it was like, okay, this is better than we thought. And I think we were lucky in swimming that one of the faces of the games um, was a Brazilian swimmer. So the swimming was packed right from the start. I know that in other sports, it took a little bit of time for the crowds to get there. Um, but swimming was always full um, and they were rowdy and they were cheering and they really embraced it. And actually I really enjoyed it. I, I, it was different from London, but we knew it was going to be because we weren't the home team, but I had a great time and I think I think that's what's special about the Paralympics. It's 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 a special environment and I think it you should try and enjoy it because we're very privileged to experience it. And I think, you know, I went in with that mindset of I'm going to enjoy this. And I also didn't know whether it was gonna be my last one. So I was like, I need to soak up everything about it because I might not experience this again. And I, I 
I, I tried to do that um, with with everything that I did when I was there. I tried was it to kind of like a typical? I know, I know what you mean by the uh, the lack of funding because I think every every single person in the country, well, if they haven't watched it, Rising Phoenix is just an yeah. amazing documentary. Well, and that was kind of yeah. Well, when I watched that not long ago, and I was like, they did a really good job of hiding just how serious it was from us. Like I had no idea that it was almost cancelled. Like that was shielded from the athletes a little bit. Oh really? I thought yeah, I, 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 I had the idea that most of the athletes kind of knew from the start. No, like we knew that it was potentially going to be less funded than it should have been. And we thought that that might impact transport. We thought it might impact uh, village facilities or something like that. But I always was like, the wall, they can't cancel it. Like they won't do that. Like surely they can't. Nobody let them get away with it. And so I think we were kind of like blissfully unaware that actually there was a real serious issue with them kind of going, well, it doesn't matter if we don't do the Paralympics. And thankfully we didn't, I think that would have just thrown us all out of whack if, if we'd have known that. Yeah, I can imagine that. So kind of like, so, so Rio, you won, you won bronze um, yeah. in, in, in Rio. Kind of, how did that, how did that feel compared to kind of compared to London? And what were your thoughts after Rio when you got um, back as well? I was disappointed with my performance in Rio, but again, the, the event had moved on very significantly from London to, to Rio. It had, some new people had come through in my event and they'd moved the times on quite considerably. And so I had a real breakthrough in 2015. I had a big PB and I broke the European record and um, I was swimming well. And so I was, I was disappointed that I didn't swim a, a, a best time for me in the final because that would have potentially got me silver, but I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but um, I, on the flip side, again, to try and take the positives from it, I was like, well, I've moved on with this event after four years and to still be um, a medalist. I was the only one that had medaled in London and Rio in that event. The two that won the gold and silver were newcomers from yeah and yeah. um, so in that respect I was pleased that I'd moved along with the event um, and again that was part of the reason that influenced my decision to retire from swimming because I think at that point I realized that I'm not sure I could have moved on with it again I think I'd reached my my peak and I'd clung on for a couple of years and and done some really good work but I'm not sure it would have gone on after that I think I was at my my peak of what I could have done yeah, well, I want to quickly talk about that change from swimming to paracanoeing, but I guess just quickly f- uh, finishing on swimming, is it like a fair stereotype that swimmers kind of peak at quite a young age? Um, I remember Ellie Simmons in Beijing, you know, was, was a ridiculously young age, 13, 14 years old when she, when she medaled there. Yeah, and swimming is becoming a younger sport, absolutely. And there's, there was less of us that were sort of the, the other side of, 20 21 22 and we were kind of the old people at 29 30 and a bit older and yeah i mean the team in rio was a lot younger team it was a big makeup of of kids and teenagers and i think it was a real shift in investing in the future of power swimming and um yeah there are generally more younger people that do swim and do well um so i just i think it coming up to 30, I was, I wasn't able to do the work that I needed to anymore. Um, and that kind of influenced my decision to, to hang up my goggles. So the obvious, well, the obvious question is kind of what inspired you to get into para canoeing then? And how did that come about? Uh, a couple of things I had heard before Rio that they were local to me in Nottinghamshire. I, I knew that they were based not far from me. And so I'd heard about them and I heard that they were looking to, to you know, grow the squad because Rio was their first Paralympics. It's the first time it was in the Games. So it was a sport in its infancy in terms of Paralympic level. And um, I kind of assumed that they would be building their squad on for the next cycle and so on. And then I found out that I fitted quite well in a, in a classification for Paracanoe. And so I had it in the back of my mind that post-Rio... I would get in touch with them and ask them if they were interested in any new athletes coming aboard and if they thought that I would fit the the sport and 
uh, I came back from Rio and I took a bit of time off and then um, I had a conversation with swimming and I wanted to be transparent with them and say that I was looking at exploring other sports and they actually helped in making that communication between me and para canoe and then they invited me along for a, a testing day and then once you get through that stage you then get invited to the next you know getting in a boat and all of that and um, and so it was a real kind of let's see um and i tried uh paratriathlon and paracycling as well with the other two that i was kind of oh, so you actually tried other sports on top of yeah, I went to go and meet with the guys at Paracycling in Manchester and I did some testing with Paratriathlon in Loughborough um, at the same time that I was doing Paracanoe stuff. And it was kind of like I got uh, really fortunately um, UK Sport do something called Talent Transfer, which if you're really serious about moving sports, they um, they funded me after my swimming funding ended. They funded me for three months to make my decision of what sport I would go to next and then once I'd made my decision and I said, you know, I'm going to commit to this sport and that sport kind of go, we see a future for this athlete in our sport. And um, it makes that transition a little bit easier. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I did. And that's how I ended up at canoeing sort of three months after that. I was about to say, you must have been impressed quite early on then if you were kind of immediately given a, you know, a, a uh, place within. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure whether I was on the radar before, I went to go and try because I think they also everybody all sports look around at other athletes and think oh they'd be good I wonder if they're interested and um I think that they probably clocked me as being a, a former swimmer and you know double leg amputee it fits well with the profile of the sport so I th but they weren't allowed to kind of get in touch because I was still under another program so um I think possibly they had their eye on me before that and then I just went over and was it I, I enjoyed it as well. So it kind of was a perfect match. So what was the atmosphere like? Well, what, what was it? How was it different compared to swimming? And how was the training different? Is, it, is the upper body strength a lot more, you know, strenuous within um, para canoeing as well? Yeah, I think this, the training is, is very different because it's a it's an explosive power sport, whereas for swimming, you need that endurance uh, work, certainly for what I did. And so um canoeing i had to kind of transition a bit from being a, an endurance athlete to a bit more of a, a powerhouse and that took a bit of time um being used to being outside was different as well and taking note of the weather situation and all of that because you don't have to do that when you swim um and then i think the biggest challenge for me was actually coming from a program where i was a medalist and i was comfortable in the world of swimming to coming into a sport where I was the rookie and I didn't know what I was doing really. And, but in my mind, I was like still approaching it as a world-class athlete, which you have to do, but I found it hard to, to be trying so hard, but still not being up there as the world-class one. And it was quite a yeah, difficult yeah sort of in, in the mindset because you kind of go from being up here and being you know top of your game to being the one that keeps falling in and you know it, it's a weird kind of dynamic and so that's quite difficult to get used to like at the start then yeah really difficult and it was one of the reasons that I think I I so I retired from swimming I, I never swam again after Rio so that was a September I had off to the December and then I kind of threw myself into para canoe training from January to well after that I kind of was committed fully and then about May time I just had a complete meltdown I think all of the emotions of leaving the sport behind that I'd always known and not knowing whether I was just taking um, the opportunity because it was there rather than is it actually what I want to do or am I just grabbing at it because that's been offered to me and it all came to a head in the, the May and I was like, I, I, I don't know what to do with all these feelings and thoughts. And so it, and then once I kind of worked through that, I went to go and see a counselor and worked through all of those things. And then that kind of set me on my way with the new head of right. This is what I'm doing now. And I'm not kind of half floating between this former swimmer world and trying to be a canoeist it was it it was a bit more focused at, from that point so even with kind of the transitional period of uk sport you know the mental side of 
you know, the tangible side is the, is the finance, but then the mental side is just, it's a lot more difficult than it is or than it seems kind of yeah. On the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you, anybody, and especially if you're an athlete, you throw yourself towards a challenge wholeheartedly and you have to, but I think sometimes you don't take the time to, to process the things that go on and you kind of go, well, this is what I'm doing now and I've got to do this and I'm going to be the best that I can be at this. But you don't deal with all the stuff that that change leaves you with. And for me, it was like a grief of losing my identity as a swimmer because that's what I'd always been. And then I wasn't that anymore. And I was like, well, if I'm not that, then, but I'm not a canoeist because I'm not good enough to be, then what am I? And I, it was just taking that time to explore who I was without sport. And that was really valuable and just get your head around just a different world. And it put me in a really good place then to, to, to focus properly on being a canoeist and starting to learn that world. point then being a canoeist that you thought right okay I'm kind of in the mix here of kind of getting to the, the next level because you again correct me if I'm wrong but you um, won the silver at the Euros in 2018 in Belgrade then at the Worlds later on that year you won the gold and the bronze yeah. at, at the Worlds was that the point where you thought right okay kind of this is this is now where I want to be permanently I think it was probably even earlier than that so I didn't start paracanoe till January 2017 and by the July I was racing at the European Championships in 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 Bulgaria and I I was like I have no idea what I'm doing here and it was obviously it was a, a racing environment but the only racing environment I'd ever known at an international level was swimming and so it was so wildly different I didn't know what a race day looked like I didn't know what how the team operated I don't I didn't know even the silly things like how early do you get to the start line because you're already out on the water, whereas at swimming you have time to do your warm up, then you get changed and then go and sit in the room and then you go and race. Whereas at canoeing, you get on, do your warm up and you, once you're on the lake, you're on and then you race and you're done. And it was just understanding all the little parts of a race day that I just had no clue about. But at that point I was like, right, well, I'm racing internationally and then I won a silver and I, God knows how, I just winged it, I think, and <laughs> I went for it. And I was probably the least nervous for an international race that I'd ever been. So I was like, well, I literally have only done this for two months. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but let's just try and get there as quick as possible. I love that. Just winging the medal. That's just, you know, just. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I made champs. I was like, just paddle as fast as you can. And hopefully that you'll get to the end in some form of time. And it was, it, you know, it was second. And I was like, well, brilliant. Um, so from that point, I was like, well, I don't feel confident in this world yet. Yet I'm still able to produce um, an internationally sound race. And I was like, so if I actually start to learn this craft a bit more and the more I understand, then surely then the progression will come. And then obviously the following year, um, I won the world. And then this last year I won Europeans world cup and the world champs. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a very steep transition, but I think it's, I mean, it's like, that's exciting. So I've not done a full cycle yet. And, you know, I'm thinking about potentially being selected for a fourth games, which, you know, the last Paralympics, I never even sat in a kayak before. So it's quite a, quite a steep, transition to do that in three and a half years i was about to say was there any point after rio that you thought i'm definitely going to make tokyo in some capacity well i wanted to because i that's I, I was sitting at the closing ceremony in rio and i was like i don't i don't want to not do this again i was like it, i just didn't feel ready to leave it behind and i knew that i had more to offer as an athlete but i wasn't sure in which capacity or how um and but i didn't feel like I was ready to say goodbye to the Paralympic movement and I was like right I need to have another bite of this cherry somehow um but you always want that whether it was a viable thing I mean I could have got in a boat and been absolutely terrible and then you know then what would I have done but you know I'm just very lucky I feel very fortunate that I found a sport that I'm decent at again and 
I've got a real shot of potentially making a fourth Paralympic Games. And I was about to say, you know, you've uh, again, I'm am right in saying you've achieved a podium in every single international race you've been in. Yes. Is that is that, is that right? I mean, that's a record one. going into a Paralympic Games. Yeah, apart from one, I but that's not in the that's not the boat that I will be racing at the. It's a different discipline which they don't have in the Paralympics for my classification. So, um, I bombed out of that was my first Worlds, and I didn't race the kayak. I raced the VAR, which um isn't in for my classification yet, but it is at the World Champs, and I went to the World Champs, raced it, and I had a complete mare, and I came last, and I was like, well, this is the reality of taking up a new sport. Like, that was kind of grounding. Um, but yes, in the kayak, which is the Paralympic discipline, um, every international that I've raced, I've won a medal. I mean, that that is some record. I mean, I guess going into Tokyo, you know, gold Paralympic medal must be the, must be the holy grail of what you'd want to, to yeah. achieve out of that, because that would complete the set. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, and I think anybody that goes to a Paralympic Games and doesn't want to win the gold is lying to you. Like, that, th- this just doesn't happen. Like, you want to go and you want to win. Like, that's the dream. You want to be a Paralympic champion. However, I have learned over my career that to put a colour on your target is, is difficult and it's potentially damaging mentally to, to do that. And obviously, if you go and you've got an ability to win the gold and you don't, you're going to be disappointed. However, you have to have that perspective of have you delivered as best you can at that point in time? If you can say yes, you can't ask for any more of yourself. Have you delivered what the plan is with like, have you delivered a good race? Yes or no. If you don't, then yeah, okay, be disappointed in yourself. But if you do everything humanly possible that you can to be as good as you can be on that day and someone beats you, then you, you can't, you can't beat yourself up about that. And I think that's the hardest thing about sport is knowing that you could have done more is where you don't want to be. But if you can come at the end of the race and go, I did everything that I could and that's what I had on the day. And this is what it's given me. It kind of gives you a sense of, I can't, I can't think of the word, but it's kind of of knowing yourself is kind of as important as, just you know the training that you've done as well obviously that helps that's part of the package that you know comes with that but I guess knowing yourself what your capabilities are because of the context of what's happened before is where that comes from yeah and of course you know and certainly for me like I my closest rival is Emma Wiggs who's won everything she's won everything and she was eight-time world champion she won in Rio and she she's not that far behind me even though now at the, at the moment I I'm on the top step and she's second it could very easily flip the other way because she's such a good competitor and I think it's why as a twosome we have kind of dominated the po- like I, it's if it's not been her winning it's been me and you know and that's what we want for the good of the sport in Britain and we want to keep being those dominant two people in our event and um so you you could never write anybody off and you know going into Tokyo if I get there um it's going to be a tough race and you just got to do the best that you can on the day and and whatever happens happens so have you still got to qualify for Tokyo then yes so um we've selected the boat slots so at the world champs uh 2019 uh we selected British spaces um seven out of a possible nine um this year we were supposed to get the second opportunity to qualify the remaining two, but that's just a great Britain boat. It's not who occupies the boat. So we, we've got the, the quota slots there and then our selection, which will be in April is for who fills those boats. Um, and that's right, yeah. what we've selected to the games. Yeah. Right. And I guess kind of going towards that, I mean, rising Phoenix, I'm going to talk about it again now, but like, as a way of kind of London 2012 was kind of the big moment where kind of Channel 4 was taken on with the Paralympics last leg appeared on TV and that was the big breakthrough with kind of the Paralympics were being treated separately sorry uh, not well not separately equal to the Olympics and now it's kind of with Rising Phoenix um, kind of it's got it's gone from kind of a a stage in this country to kind of an international stage now uh, the media um, kind of pressure in Tokyo that must be a massive buzz kind of when you get there even with all the COVID stuff that you know you're going to experience pretty 
the, the most kind of potentially watched Paralympic Games ever. Yeah, and that's really exciting. And I, we were lucky enough to go out to, to Tokyo last September. It was the end of our season. We'd come back from the Worlds and they were doing the test event. Um, and we were lucky enough to go out to race there. And they were so excited, or are hopefully still, but you could feel it when you we landed there. All the posters around Tokyo were about the Paralympics and the, they were about to host the Rugby World Cup and there was hardly anything about that. And yet everything was like Tokyo 2020 and they were so excited to, for us to be there. And certainly for the Brits, like they have said, they, they were like, you know, if we don't support Japan, we support GB. And <laughs> I think that's really good that um, certainly Paralympic GB have made a real effort to, to, to have that relationship with the, with the Japanese representatives. And it shows in the support that they give us. So yeah, I'm not surprised that the games was going to be a sellout before the opening ceremony. And hopefully if we can go to Tokyo next year safely and have a games with spectators, I think it will be packed. I really do. And I think that they will go wild for it because they were already excited and it was a full year away at that point. And the test event got people there and there was all these bands and there was just, they were so happy to, to be having the games and even out and about in Tokyo, we, we went to Disneyland for the day and like we, they were like, Oh, you know, why are you here? And they, we were like, Oh, we're British athletes. Wow. We can't wait to have you all here. And <laughs> That's amazing. That and again, you can have like, you are celebrities out there. That's kind of, yeah, and they were just so excited to, to host the games and, I really hope that they get the opportunity to do it in the way that it deserves to be done because I think it will be a really incredible games. I honestly do. So just finishing off then, I mean, is Tokyo going to be potentially your last Paralympics or are you looking beyond that? Even Paris in, in 2024, Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, if that's a possibility? Uh, I said in Beijing that I was retiring and look where I am now. So I, <laughs> I have very quickly learned to never say never and even if I was going into Tokyo going, this is going to be it. I know that I'd probably race at the games and go, I don't want to leave this behind. Like I can't possibly, because it's so incredible. And actually, you know what? Because of the games being moved a year, by the time you've had a break after, which you will need after a five-year cycle, after you've had a break after Tokyo, and once you're back into the swing of training, it's going to be at least mid-2022 because it takes just a bit of time to get back into the swing of things you're only two years away from being selected for the next games because it's such a short cause of the games being moved. So it makes it seem a lot more achievable to hang on for another one. I think um, before this, I would have said maybe to, uh, Paris is on the cards, but the more I think about it, I, I would love to do another one if I could. And so in some way it's kind of like a second home games almost. You just got to, pop down to London, go on the Eurostar, and then you kind of at the games. Yeah, well, all my friends are like, oh, it's much easier to get to France than it is to get to Japan. So <laughs> it could come for like a few days and then, you know, have wine, cheese and love life. And then they could just bob back on the train. So, yeah, I mean, I think it would be, I think it would be a really special games. And I think as well, after the whole thing that's gone on with Tokyo, it might be nice to just hopefully have a games that's a bit more of a normal run in. and enjoy that for for what it is because i think even as it stands now the run into tokyo will be still very different and there'll be things that um people who are selected the the buzz might not be the same just because um people have got to save money and they've got to to be yeah. pragmatic about it so um hopefully come paris the world will look like a much more normal Back place to normal again yeah kind of enjoy that that excitement about a, a games so just um, lastly, I always end these uh, podcasts with the same thing. If you had, um, and I guess with you, it's a bit different because you've done two different sports, but if you've got any advice to give to kind of youngsters um, or kind of any advice you've given to youngsters when you kind of gone into schools, you know, with showing off the medals as well, um, what would that advice be? Um, I think the biggest thing that I've learned throughout my career is that there's there's always a positive in every 
situation, even though maybe at the time you don't see it. And, you know, I think certainly the things that have disappointed me about my career have served a purpose in the end and it's made me stronger and it's made me understand myself more. And that would be my advice is to try and look for the positives in every situation um, because I'm pretty sure there is one somewhere in everything. And to just, if you've got a dream and a drive that to pursue it because there's, there's opportunities out there and, you know, if, if you get an opportunity, grasp it with both hands and go for it. You know, it's, it can lead you to some amazing places. Like I never thought as a kid growing up with a dream to go to a Paralympics that I would do it, let alone do it three times and win two medals and then hopefully change sports. Like I, I would never have seen that path for myself and yet it's happened. So you've got to be open to, 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 to following that dream and let it take you wherever it will take you. And I think that helps you to enjoy it, which is also important. You know, it's a very privileged life that I live and lucky to do what I do. And I have to try and remember that sometimes when it gets all too serious, it's like, actually, you know what I do is I'm so fortunate to do it and try and enjoy every moment because it's not going to last forever. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter, it's at EssexLadPara, and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some Essex Lad and Paralympian. Farewell, and we'll see you soon.